Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside Infrastructure. I'm Ilya Zak from PwC Australia and I'm joined as always by my co-host Adrian Dreyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Adrian, how's it going? Uh, it's good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Now, uh, before we get to the main content for today's episode, you guys have I'm just insulted that I'm not the main content, but fine. Oh, you're always you're always the main content in my heart, Adrian. But uh, more importantly, you guys have just released a new report at Infrastructure Partners Australia, haven't you? I've had a busy few weeks. Actually, we released three new reports. Oh wow! Uh, one on um, investment budget monitor, uh, so that looks at. Um, all the different investments the states are making, puts them in a league table. Uh, we did an investor survey, uh, which is uh, global investors in infrastructure. But I think the one you're talking about is a piece of work on road user charging and specifically around electric vehicles. Uh, that is the one I was referring to. Uh, can you tell us a bit about it? Uh, so, yeah, we, Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, along with a lot of other bodies like the Productivity Commission, Infrastructure Australia, the Harper Review, Infrastructure Victoria, lots of others have spoken about uh, having a road user charge, a rational approach to the way we charge for road use. So right now people pay fuel excise at the pump um, and notionally that is is towards the consumption of roads. But as cars have got more fuel efficient over time, um, they use less petrol for the kilometres they travel or less diesel for the kilometres they travel and therefore not as much is raised um, in terms of revenue through fuel excise and the kind of effective cost per kilometre has gone down. Um, and that's about to accelerate very quickly with um, electric vehicle uptake uh, and the future of light transport is electric we think there's this uh, kind of once in a generation opportunity that's open for the next couple of years to uh, change the way we charge for roads at the thin end of that technology wedge uh, by applying a distance-based charge equivalent to fuel excise to electric vehicles it's a bit of a change though isn't it from because uh, this isn't the first report that infrastructure partners australia has released on the topic and previously you've called for I think uh, mass distance location and time to be components of the the road user charge. This is a bit of a departure from that. Um, can you explain the change? Yeah, so I think over the last ten years, IPA has kind of been leading this policy debate around road user charging, and there's been a lot of focus on what what's the right idea, what's the right outcome uh, in the end game, what's the the economically perfect solution, um, which is generally considered to be a mass distance location-based charge. So that is you would get charged a differential rate based on how heavy a vehicle is, where it's traveling and, and at what time. Uh, I think that um, that is the sort of the, the end game, but there's also a reality that big reforms happen incrementally um, and you have to seize on opportunities when they arise. And there is an opportunity right now with electric vehicles uh, in that an electric car, a Tesla or a Hyundai um, next to a petrol Corolla at the traffic lights, one of those cars is paying to use the road at the point of use, the, the, the petrol car, but the other two aren't. They're not paying to use the roads. Um, and if you cast forward 20 years when most new vehicles sold will be electric, um, very few people will be paying to use the roads. If you make anything free, it will be consumed and over-consumed. There won't be a revenue stream to maintain existing roads and build new ones. But we can solve that problem now by just putting an equivalent rate uh, on electric vehicles. It's equivalent to fuel excise. So nobody pays twice. Everybody pays once. Everybody pays their fair share. So previously, you would, uh, I guess that perfect model would be trying to solve a bunch of different problems, including the revenue problem, but also congestion and maybe uh, the impact that heavier vehicles have. And in this report, you're uh, 
it, there's an opportunity you've identified to solve purely the revenue problem without uh, necessarily making a, a substantial changes to other stakeholders. Is that is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, there's nothing about the proposal we're saying that precludes doing those things later on, nor does it presuppose that one would do those things later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can still see a future where with a, a distance-based charge in place, um, that one would be able to add layers to that to achieve different policy outcomes. But in the first instance, there is just a, uh, there's a fairness issue that that some people are paying a fuel excise and some people through their ownership of an electric vehicle aren't making a contribution. That's something we can correct really quite easily. It doesn't, nobody needs to know where the electric vehicle driver has been or what speed they were going or when they went there. Just a simple odometer reading that applies a chart that is equal and equivalent to fuel excise means that both of those cars next to each other, the petrol one and the electric one, were making a fair and equal contribution to the upkeep of the roads. How do you calculate what is the equivalent to excise if there's such high degrees of variation in efficiency for existing internal combustion engine vehicles? Yeah, so you have to use averages. Um, So if you look over the past 12 years, the average has been about six cents a kilometre. Um, so the the average car driving the average kilometres, you do that by calculating the total amount of kilometres and then the total amount of fuel excise and and doing a bit of arithmetic. So yeah, you know it it is the average car travelling the average kilometres does pay this amount per kilometre. Um, it's six cents over the last twelve years. Right now, it's about four cents a kilometre. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's declined quite rapidly over that time, and it will decline further. You have to pick a number for this. Yeah. We used four cents a kilometre because that's the, the current rate that there's other options. And in theory, that should stabilise the revenue loss over the foreseeable future? Yeah. Um, again, it depends on the, the rate you pick. But if you assume that every uh, electric vehicle kilometre travelled in the future is replacing a petrol kilometre or a diesel kilometre that's not travelled, uh, if you're recovering the same average rate from both, you should arrest the decline in fuel excise or general revenue from it. The other thing it allows you to do is capture the additional kilometres travelled. Mm-hmm. So the, the decline in fuel excise per kilometre is driven by two things. One is declining fuel consumption because cars have become more efficient, but also a fairly dramatic increase in the number of kilometres travelled. So over the timeframes I spoke about, the fuel excise revenue has gone down by 20% and vehicle kilometres has gone up by 30%. So we've got this increasing demand and declining revenue. Like, you know, you want those two lines on a graph going in the same direction. Absolutely. I'm just in my head, I'm imagining a couple of, uh, to play devil's advocate, imagining a couple of potential workarounds here. What if a hybrid vehicle um, spends, you know, ten percent of its kilometres um, driving on pure electric, um, or and and there's a whole variety of, of proportions there that they that some of these hybrid vehicles have. Some of them are even plug-in hybrids, and they can spend just the majority of their time driving all electric. How does your proposal deal with them? Uh, so these are all within government's gift to set where these policy parameters lie. The proposal we've said is you take the most efficient hybrid or plug-in hybrid vehicle available today, which is uh, uses one litre per 100 kilometres on the, the officially rated mm-hmm. level of um, fuel consumption. You say anything that, that is more efficient than that would fall under the new regime mm-hmm. because they're not using much um, fuel anyway and they're capable of being driven without using full fuel, particularly if they're a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. So we're saying you take the baseline of the best available today and you say anything new in the market that falls under that would fall under the new regime because you don't want to create a perverse incentive where an ultra-hybrid is selected because it yeah. avoids... Exactly. In effect, both 
system. So uh, again, it's a bit. Um, there's a grey area. It's a grey area where it's fringes, but it's a relatively small area of the fringes. And if you talk to the technology people on this, they'll say that hybrids look like a transitional technology. It doesn't make a lot of sense to carry around both types of kit mm. in a car, uh, and they see those as being a transitional technology between the internal combustion engine world that we're in now and the electric future. That we're moving towards. I think it'll be very interesting to see how governments react to it, particularly as the federal government's budget projects significant erosion in their tax base. I think we've discussed it before on this show with, from memory with Scott Charlton of whether or not this is a sort of a burning platform issue or is it more of a frog in boiling water issue. Um, and I guess this is how they react to your work will really be an indication of which one of those it is. So it's a great piece of work by IPA, and I encourage listeners to go to the Infrastructure Partnerships Australia website to see it in further detail. Now, moving on to our main topic for today, we have a discussion with our special guest, Tim Nelson, Executive General Manager of Strategy and Economic Analysis at the AEMC. We spoke to Tim a couple of months ago, shortly after the release of his latest academic paper, which is something he just happens to do in parallel with his day job. Tim's knowledge and understanding of the electricity sector in Australia is plainly second to none, and so here he is, Tim Nelson. Tim Nelson, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. You're now at AMC. Um, you're very well known for your work in um, the energy sector, but that wasn't how your career started. And maybe you could take us back to the roots of how you ended up at, in the role you are now. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, if I go right back in time, I grew up mainly in regional Australia. Uh, Which so, bits? Uh, all, all over the place. Um, so I moved around quite a bit as a kid. Um, uh, but I guess a lot of that kind of uh, childhood experience, the diversity of all the people that I met kind of set me up quite well for a lot of the roles that I've done, you know, in terms of interacting with lots of different people. Um, but if I go right back in time, I did an economics degree. I started doing economics law, um, very quickly worked out um, that the law wasn't for me. Um, so I, I gravitated back towards economics. And even from uh, late high school, I always had in the back of my mind I wanted to go and work at the Reserve Bank. So I thought the Reserve Bank or Treasury sounds like a great place uh, for economic policy. Um, and then I got to the Reserve Bank and then I quickly worked out uh, – finance is probably not really where I wanted to be. Um, so I was a cadet graduate at the RBA, uh, did that for about a year and a half. When was that? Uh, year 2000. Um, uh, so that was, the RBA was independent and- Oh, absolutely. Uh, so all, yeah, absolutely. And a, and a very, uh, you know, a very well-regarded institution with a great reputation. So it did set up, I guess, uh, my career quite- um, quite well in the sense that, you know, the, the cadet graduate um, positions at the RBA didn't grow on trees. So it was a, it was, I was very lucky to get one. Um, but quickly worked out finance wasn't my thing. Um, I want to say finance, um, pure, you know, financial market type um, activity. I was more interested in broader economic policy. Um, uh, and if I go right back in time, probably Treasury would have been um, the other obvious place for somebody like me to go. But the RBA would have been doing more of the Pure economics. Absolutely. I found myself in the uh, financial markets area, though, so the domestic markets area, and look, learned a lot. Um, it was a fantastic uh, short time that I was there, um, but really was gravitating towards these bigger picture um, type questions. Uh, and uh, there was a, a job um, at New South Wales Premier and Cabinet, or back in those days it was called the Cabinet Office in the Economic Development Branch. And I thought that sounds like the kind of thing that I'm I'm um, particularly interested in. Um, 
got the job um, and then literally fell into um, energy and greenhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the early part of the 2000s, um, uh, energy was part of the, the broader microeconomic reform story. Uh, and I literally just fell into energy. The New South Wales government at that point uh, was committed to developing um, what ended up becoming GGAS, the the world's first uh, mandatory greenhouse gas trading scheme. Um, helped um, advise on that for uh, the cabinet process, uh, and then went to AGL in two thousand and four. And AGL couldn't get rid of me, and I hung around all the way through until late two thousand and eighteen. And you know, for the last ten months, I've been at the the Australian Energy Market Commission. Why did you decide to leave government? Look, at the time, uh, my boss, two layers up, um, uh, a wonderful person named Jane McAloon had gone to AGL. Uh, and Jane offered me a job originally, um, you know, pretty much straight after um, uh, her leaving government uh, to go to the uh, to go to AGL. Um, I initially said no and said, look, I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing. And then she came back to me a little bit later and the job that she had for me at AGL was in and around greenhouse and around preparing the business for a carbon constrained future. And I thought, wow, that sounds really interesting. What, what year was that? To the, at the end of 2004. Right. So, so AGL had just bought um, a third of, uh, or roughly a third of um, the Loyang A power station right. and the accompanying mine. Um and what better time to go into kind of talk about those issues than when a, an organisation has just acquired such an emissions intensive asset? Was that was that uh, w- was that priced in a way that assumed an an incoming carbon price? Look, you'd probably have to go right back in time and ask the people who'd been in, in the room. My understanding is that you know, like all good corporate governance. Uh, climate change was considered. There may have been a shadow price applied. I'm not sure. Um, certainly, in my experience, um, having been at AGL all of those years after that, every time that someone was thinking about something big, uh, climate change was an explicit part of at least some of the scenarios people were thinking about. Right. Um, would you describe yourself as a policy economist? Or It's a good question. Um, I often kind of have those 2am moments where you wake up and you think, what is it that I'm actually any good at? I'm not 100% <laughs> sure. Um, I often say to people, um, I really only have one particular skill and that's taking really complicated stuff and trying to make it simple. Um, but I, if I had to describe myself, I would say I'm a policy economist. I think, um, you know, if you compare my skill set to you know some really good economists um i'm not a great economist um i'm probably not one of the greatest policy thinkers but if you combine the two skill sets i'm probably not too bad at you you mean um the econometric side of of economics that just deals with endless statistics that's what you when when you're saying economist that's what you're referring to oh look i'd say um i always break economics down into quant and, and qualitative and quant um you know i would well down the list of people who um, would profess to be good at quantitative economics. Can you drive a spreadsheet without using the mouse? Oh, the in- <laughs> yes. So I've got. <laughs> then, then, as far as I'm concerned, you're an excellent. But a lot of the young people I work with now tell me that you know, when you even mention spreadsheets, it's kind of like talking about a pocket calculator twenty years ago. <laughs> you know, they're all using R and Tableau, yeah. and in the in the energy space, you know, everyone's using Plexos now and. And there's some amazing things that um, we're trying to get going at the at the 
commission where we're developing what we're calling a centre for modelling excellence, where we're trying to get all of the jurisdictions that fund us, so the state governments largely, but also the Commonwealth. And we're saying, look, to the extent that you've got really bright, young, capable modellers, let's link them all together through an online capability um, and just get them talking about what's the best way of approaching some of these these modelling. That's one of the... We'll come back to some career stuff shortly, but that's one of the great things about the energy sector. It's so data rich. Like the, the production of data is just far in excess of, I think, any other infrastructure space. I don't, do you, you agree with that? Is that Absolutely. Fair? Yeah, there's, it's, uh, everything can be quantified. Absolutely everything. The inputs and, and outputs and the benefits. It's, uh, I don't think there's a, I, I can't think of another sector. That and could, distilled that into a price in a market. Like that, yeah. That's the thing, that, that, that the kind of pinnacle of the information. Yeah, in the next couple of years, we'll be moving to five-minute settlement within the wholesale market. Um, you know, I'm trying to do it off the top of my head and I can't do the numbers, but there's 8,760 hours in a year and now we're moving to five-minute settlements. So you kind of multiplying that by 12 and that's just the number of observations um, that you're getting some price um, outcomes for. You've also got the fact that there's all these participants in the market um, with the increased penetration of digital technologies. Um, Not only do you have all of the aggregate numbers on a five-minute basis, but increasingly you're going to have it on a um, individual Individual. customer basis. So the, the volume of data and I guess the importance of being able to analyze that data effectively, like the big data sets is going to become, you know, not just a critical skill set for the participants in the market, but for the market bodies themselves. So for AEMO, for us, um, for the AAR, um, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, there's going to be a big drive towards making sure that people have got the right data capabilities to analyze that big data, as you say. We do want to talk about um, your, your current role, but before we get to that, I would, we uh, skipped a bit of time at AGL there. Just fourteen years. Just fourteen years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you made the jump there. You were you uh, eventually uh, you were chief economist, I think, at the end of AGL, um, replacing Paul Simshouse, who was there for a long time in that role. Um, is that it? Was that largely the kind of work that you were doing for the entire time there, or did you start? In- uh, the only caveat I'd put to what you just said there is no one could ever replace Paul. Um, um, hopefully he will listen to this and he'll hear that. Um, no, so when I first started, uh, I was working in what was called group environment. Um, and I guess I had two functions. One was thinking about uh, climate uh, risk and trying to think about that. And the second was um, helping drive the uptake of the sustainability um, agenda more broadly um, and the sustainability report, um, which AGL had been producing uh, since 2004. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. Then uh, there was the uh, merger, demerger with Alinta. Um, there was the acquisition of Southern Hydro. Um, uh, Greg Martin left, Paul Anthony started. Um, and at that point, uh, I shifted in and was doing probably more what I would call public policy government affairs work for a very short period of time. Um, when And Paul Anthony was only around for a very short period of time. After Paul left and uh, Michael Fraser took the reins, um, Michael, uh, one of his first things that he did was he brought on um, Paul Simshauser. So this is 2008. Um and uh, Paul uh, started as the chief economist uh, 
head of corporate affairs. Uh, Paul always jokes that he doesn't really care what any, what, what people call him as long as he gets the title chief economist. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I pretty much worked for Paul until he left, which was 2015. Uh, and my role under Paul was, again, I, I looked after the sustainability agenda, the public policy positioning, uh, a lot of the greenhouse energy reporting obligations under the Greenhouse Energy Reporting Act. Um, for a brief period of time, uh, we were doing all kinds of things around um, certificate creation under some of the energy efficiency schemes. Mm-hmm. But I guess most people would say that my reason for being there was all of the public policy work that Paul and I were driving. And interestingly, you, because Paul Simshauser is actually Professor Paul Simshauser, and you managed to miraculously uh, do your PhD with Paul as your PhD supervisor while working at at AGL, is that right? Uh, Paul wasn't a supervisor, but... I think he would be what you would call a shadow supervisor. Um, so he he certainly um, was, uh, I guess, one of two people that I'd say was the the primary um, uh, primary people who were kind of guiding me through. Um, the other one being a fantastic um, mentor of mine up from UNE, um, Judy McNeil. Um, but Paul was my primary industry mentor, um, a great mind of the energy industry. Um, uh, and certainly, uh, between Paul and I, I think we 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 complemented each other in a great way for those six years. So um, Paul has a, a, a just an insatiable drive to produce, you know, high quality work. He's he's a real workaholic. Um, not that I'd say that I'm lazy, but I'm certainly nowhere near as much of a workaholic as Paul. Um, uh, but what I was able to do was to try and, I guess. Uh, make a lot of the arguments that we were putting forward a little bit, um, a little bit more easily digestible by some of our stakeholders, and there was, it was, it was quite a good combination between the two of us. Um, I would, I would hazard a guess that I probably learned a lot more from him than he learned from me, um, but certainly, you know, probably the six years that we were doing that together was probably the more, most enjoyable six years that um, I've had in a in a workplace. Leaving aside the the content that was produced that's quite a unique alignment of of opportunities isn't it because you were producing the AGL blog the content that you were producing was i assume in 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 large part informing your phd and you were working full time for a you know major corporation as well all all through the whole process that's pretty pretty unique as an opportunity f- yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 when I look back at some of the the papers that we produced and some of the the, the thinking that we put into the public debate, um, the very first paper I had published was the one that was titled "Delayed Carbon Policy Certainty and Electricity Prices in Australia," um, and it was the one that more or less said that the longer you don't have certainty, the more people tend to bias towards um, light capex, higher opex type investments, and that's not going to be conducive towards lowering costs over the longer term or minimizing costs over the longer term. And at the time that was put out, you know, it was being referenced in speeches by, you know, the Prime Minister, all kinds of very high profile prominent people. And I guess that's the way that I've always tried um, uh, to, 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 to work in that public policy sphere, not not kind of shameless self-promotion, but just do the work 
um, have honest, open conversations with stakeholders about what the work implies, and then if people find it useful for um, public policy purposes, then then that's a wonderful thing to to know that your work is having um, some type of impact. Towards the end of your time at AGL, there was um, quite a bit of exciting discussion about the Liddell power plant, um, and it uh, just got announced that it's. I think they're keeping it open for an extra summer. They're going to keep it running for an extra summer. Um, what uh, is is there any light you can shed on 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 that decision, or maybe that I guess that was after your time. Up to you. For yeah, look, what, it's what's it's it's interesting. There? If I go right back in time, I mean, the whole purpose of um, the disclosure in 2015 was really to avoid what had happened in other states. Right. Um, and what where, happened, where they didn't give yeah, a there whole was, lot of notice. There was, there was, I think, on spike. average between six or nine months' notice given. And, of course, that's not a lot of time when you're replacing, you know, large um, capital-intensive plant. And so the whole purpose of, of doing what um, what uh, AGL did at that point in time was to really provide, you know, a substantial amount of notice and to make it very clear that, um, you know, the market – uh, was then able to work out well, you know, who who should be um, based upon kind of individual participants, you know, risk and return type uh, matrices. Who it, it it opened up opportunity for other people to then think about the optimal investment that they might want to make. And the closure date was no different from what was originally intended when it was uh, in government hands. Oh, look, I probably wouldn't want to offer a view on on what. Uh, was I guess the the intent of the government, um, right. but but I would note that um, most of the discussion I think in the public domain talked about um, uh, the the power stations that were coming to the end of their 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 operating life as being replaced with something uh, you know more modern that that was uh, going to be a, a better fit for the market dynamics that were were playing forward, and I guess that's the the other thing that. Um, you know, I'd, I'd hope that my contribution in the last couple of years, having written a couple of papers on this, is really to talk about the the nature of the type of complementary plant that should be coming into the market. Um, and that plant generally has the characteristics now of fast start, dispatchable, um, and that tends to look like reciprocating engine or open cycle gas turbine or longer term, you know, your pumped hydro, your storage type technologies. Uh, because we've seen quite a lot of change in the market in the last couple of years. Uh, we've got eight gigawatts of new renewables coming into the system. That variable supply uh, is fundamentally changing the price duration curve. So we're seeing- so Can you just like, explain that in you know, simple terms? So what what's happened? What does the sheer penetration of renewables into the market, what effect is that having and why is it now such a- crucial issue that we address firm power. So I think um, the best way of thinking about it is if you just assume that there's a really simple system um, for power, we tend to use more power in the evenings or the afternoons when we all get home and we all switch on our you know, heaters, air conditioners, whatever it might be. Um, uh, solar generally produces you know, most of its output in the middle of the day. Wind is very variable in nature, so it, it's it's either windy or it's not windy, so to speak. Um, and what that means is that when you've got this very variable supply, uh, and it's generally coincident in its production. So, in other words, when it's sunny, 
all of the solar systems, you know, are producing gangbusters. And when, you know, it's windy, a lot of the wind farms uh, are, are chugging away. And when it's not windy and it's not sunny, there's not much there. And so what that means is that you tend to get these price periods now where you get very, very low prices. And in fact, we've had quite a few recently at zero all around the NEM, haven't we? Yeah, it's been a, it's been kind of almost unprecedented where, you know, you look up at the screen at 2 p.m. in the afternoon and it's blue or all across and blue is kind of what they do for the, the very low prices. Mm. And so you see zero in New South Wales, zero in Queensland, zero in SA, zero in Tassie, zero in, um, in Victoria. But then you go back in the evening, and this is why I think what a lot of people aren't talking about, and in the evening at 6 p.m., all of the screens are looking red and you've got relatively higher prices to what we've seen in the past. I was actually I'm really interested just yesterday, because uh, I'm an Australia customer and the, they have a pilot program right now of um, uh, reducing demand management with uh, incentives and credits on the bill. and. The the times where they've sent out a message that says reduce your usage over the next two hours, the times have generally been uh, what I would expect to be the the you know maybe the hottest the hottest day or something along those lines, like a critical peak day. Yesterday it was between six and eight p.m. on a mild winter day. You're a participant in this. I'm a participant in the pilot. So yeah. what's it what's it get you today? Uh, they send out a message that says if you reduce your – I've got a smart meter. If you reduce your consumption uh, below a baseline that's been set – 10%, 20% below a baseline that's been set over the last two weeks for this time period, there's 10 bucks off your bill or something something along those lines. Yeah, there's, um, there's lots of those types of models in the market. But that was, at, that was at a time that – the exact time that you just said, 6 to 8 p.m., which was uh, not what on, – on a mild – uh, we're almost in spring day. That's not where, what we previously would have assumed is the critical peak day. Previously, it was either the coldest day or the hottest day. Yeah, and there's lots of people asking the question now around um, uh, what's driving some of these higher prices in the evening. Um, uh, could it be that startup costs or kind of uh, those kind of minimum operating costs in the middle of the day just to stay on now have become marginal costs, not fixed costs, um, which is an interesting way of thinking about the economics of it. Um, again, I don't think anyone's nailed that. People are asking questions though, which I think is good. But if you're, an, if you're an investor looking to put new plant on the ground, in that type of environment, you're thinking, wow, if, if I've got a plant that generally I need to turn on and then I generally the engineers tell me I should just leave it on because it's not designed to go up and down, then that's going to be a, a bit of a challenge for me to operate in that environment. Because you can't, you, you need to be making money the whole time it's on, not just in the period where the wholesale price is on. G generally, yes, but also uh, it takes a long time to go from off to on um, at full ball. Whereas um, if I've got a different type of technology that can go from off to on very quickly, then that tends to suit these types of environments where you know, you've got these relatively sudden changes in um, variable renewables that mean you need to to move into that space. And one market participant very recently that's acquired some gas turbines um, has made that very clear in their investor presentation that what they're trying to do is they're trying to package up their renewables portfolio with these firm dispatchable but relatively fast start um, types of uh kit and what they're then doing is saying we can then go and talk to customers and say well we can write you a a firm swap contract or a synthetic version of it and that allows them to sell power even though it's from a mix of sources whereas traditionally a participant might have looked to have one source of energy 
um, to supply that contract. So if I can just unpack that then, so the the, the energy system of old has got a, a big, bulky, capital-intensive, spinny thing driven by steam and coal at one end and consumers at the other. But then the penetration of variable renewables undermines the investment case for those big always-on Well, it changes things, the dynamics, changes yeah. It. Um, and then the more renewables that come in, the, the more that volatility is evident. Yeah, there's there's been a couple of studies, like academic studies, that have talked about um, that volatility becoming quite significant. Um, a lot of that depends upon the type of technology, though, that complements renewables. Because if you think of a... Uh, a world with a very high penetration of variable renewables, but with storage as well, then the price duration curve or the price curve in the across the year tends to look a little bit flatter because the moment the price goes up, then I'm going to want to discharge my battery to capture the revenue. The moment the price goes down, then I'm going to want to charge it and vice versa. So um, battery, pumped hydro, whatever the storage capability is. But I think the other side of the dynamic, and you've talked about it here, is the consumer. Um, and that is the space which I think is probably the missing piece of the policy puzzle. And it's one of the five strategic priorities that the Commission's put out um, this year. Um, this digitalization of, of energy demand. And I guess in the long term, um, you can see a future where not just the meter is digital, but everything behind the meter is digital. So, you know, you see now um, various um, consumer durable manufacturers are putting ads out that, you know, talk about their watch being able to control their washing machine and these other types of automation services. Mm. Well, I, I can control my air conditioning from my phone. And I am, um, actually, Ily and I are good case studies in this. So he's, he's on a demand management trial. I have solar panels and do things like... Um, I'll put my air conditioning on when we're out during the day and the solar panels are, are going hard so that it's cool by the time I get home and I can switch them off. Yeah, the, the point pretty cool. I have to pay for Surely that's not, you're not doing that, you know, for the whole day though, right? You yeah, I, I pretty much before. watch my phone and watch the, <laughs> watch the solar because the, the, the inverter's Wi-Fi connected. Right. So I'm watching this, the, the readout on the solar and then timing the air conditioning such that I don't have to pay... <laughs> the electricity when it's yeah I'm a, I'm a nerd well no no but but this is the, the the future the future is if if all of these devices are digitally enabled then it's not just the nerds out there like us that are going to be able to participate in this because you will find aggregators will come along and say um, you won't even notice yeah I want it to be I don't want to have to actively do it I want a, something smart to do it for me. And and that's what the the digital technology will will enable people to do. That said, it requires some other things to be uh, in play. And and one of the other strategic so there's five strategic priorities. Um, Digitalisation of energy is one. System security is another. And 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 that's where not being an engineer, I would never profess to kind of offer a a, a conclusive view about uh, system security. But there are amazing people at the Commission and AEMO who are really thinking carefully about things like frequency and voltage and system strength and these other types of System security services. means, from a consumer perspective, is no blackouts. Is that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. um, so uh, it's basically making sure the system has the right services to remain stable. Um, 
but the the one which I think is uh, the other one of the strategic priorities, which I think is really relevant to um, that digitalization space, which is a priority in itself, is uh, the integration of distributed energy resources. So it comes back to your point around the consumer. Um, we've seen two million households install solar. Um, we're now seeing a wave of battery schemes coming through. Um, uh, subsidies for batteries, um, but also just battery uptake by consumers. Um, electric vehicles are a, a thing which everyone talks about. And this home automation is another thing that people ta- are talking about. So the commission has made it clear that uh, we need to make sure that we've got the right regulatory framework, particularly for electricity networks, to ensure that we get the optimal use out of these DER um the distributed energy resources. And when I say optimal use, not just the optimal use for you as an individual or me as an individual, but the optimal use for everyone. Mm. And so the, the commission's got a, a report um, that it's uh, uh, been asked to do um, on the regulatory frameworks for electricity networks. That'll be out in the next little while. And um, and I think that'll be a, an opportunity for the commission to talk about some of these issues and and provide some guidance on at least what the commission thinks so we, might be some of the necessary things to do there. We've alluded to it a few, a few times, I guess, but you're, you're, that's it's the the role at AEMC now, the Australian Energy Market Commission. Can we can we talk a little bit about that? Because you've come there from a, um, you know, one of the big three market players. I'm sure the commission's very excited for you to bring all the the, the big three secrets across with you, <laughs> <laughs> all, all 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 the ins and outs of how 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 the market participants are making money. Can you talk us through what your role is at the commission today and what kind of projects you're working on? Yeah, so look, I, I look after um, the area that's called strategy and economic analysis. Um, strategy is usually the word that's added when you want to look after it, whatever you want to look after, right? <laughs> you could say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> now, look, I think uh, generally what I've been doing at, at the commission is trying to bring a lot of things together. Um, so the commission has amazing, amazing capability, both at the commissioner level, but also um, uh, some of the people inside the commission are, are just incredibly bright, inc- incredibly enthusiastic. Um, can, can I just point out with that that I was very fortunate to spend some time at the commission, and I have never seen another government agency like it. It's incredible. The first I, I, I'm a consultant now, but the first time I ever actually build time was working at the Australian Energy Market Commission. Were you there long enough to build time? (laughs) (laughs) It was only a short period, but genuinely no other government department works as uh, much like a cross between a think tank and a a consultancy as the Australian Energy Market Commission. It's a remarkable place. Look, it is. It's it's an amazing place, amazingly bright people, um, and also people who are motivated by that national energy objective. There is a real... Um, strong sense of belief that that's what we're all there to do every day, which is to to make sure that we um, get the right outcomes that are in the long-term interests of consumers. So I guess part of what um, uh, the, 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 the couple of projects that the team looks after, we now look after the price trends and the quant modeling side of things. So that's been really exciting, um, developing in-house modeling capability. Um, historically, the commission tended to uh, get outside um, consultants to do a lot of that. Um, uh, but we've brought that in-house. Um, we've set up this centre for for modelling excellence that we're trying to get a little bit more um, discussion going amongst 
the various modelers within the jurisdictions and, and ourselves and AEMO. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we also uh, do a lot of advice to the individual projects. So we have a team of economists and what their role really is to do is to provide economic advice to the people who are driving the individual projects that relate to rule changes. Kind of like an in-house service provider. Yeah, like an in-house um, consultant, so to speak. Um, and there's a couple of good reasons for that. A, it's to drive consistency of approach so that um, you've got this consistent strategic approach, the way in which we're approaching things. Um, but the second um, part of that is that a lot of the uh, economic thinking on issues is not too dissimilar. It's actually very, very. there's a very consistent theme of economic thinking through a lot of what we're doing. Mm. Um, earlier on, you, you drew a comparison between the RBA and the commission. Um, is that fair? You sort of think of them as playing sort of similarly independent-ish yeah, absolutely. Um, both set up um, uh, to to do things independently um, of uh, of political decisions, so to speak. But but that said, they both have um, responsibilities to report back to um, you know the executive uh, governments within which they um, operate. The AMC is a little unusual in the sense that it's it's the creature of the Coag Energy Council. Um, uh, and therefore, um, I always say that we've got many um, shareholders being um, all of the very important state governments that fund us. And therefore, you know, our obligation is really to make sure not only are we discharging the statutory function, which is to um, uh, look after the rule change process, but it's also to provide them with the advice that they're after. And increasingly, um, the engagement that that we're doing um, with those state governments is leading them to ask us um, much more informally for how we would approach problems and, and try and help them solve um, particular problems within their jurisdiction as they relate to to energy. Can, can we talk through that a little bit? The the and and I mean with a, a bit of a history lesson. Um, the there's a lot of, you know, energy gets a lot of attention in the media and from politics and for obvious reasons, but I think there's very little, there's there's probably not that much community understanding about the role of the AMC versus the AER versus the AMO versus the market participants, et cetera, et cetera. And now the, well, the and increasingly direct intervention. Direct intervention, well. yeah. And, and, and so can you maybe, um, and, and I think it's it's not particularly fair that, that, that those things aren't recognised because it's the result of probably one of... Australia's most ambitious and successful productivity reforms in the 90s, the national competition policy. Can you talk us through, just briefly, what the scenario was before the NCP in the 90s? What we, what the energy, I know this was before you were necessarily working in the sector, but I'm sure you have some awareness of it. What, what the challenges were that the sector was experiencing that led to the creation of, of the governance structure that you're working in now? Yeah, look, having having written a couple of papers on the, the the brief history of some of this stuff, if I had to kind of summarise it really quickly, um, you, you had state electricity commissions drive a lot of the uptake of the big generation and transmission, the economies of scale that were extracted out of that. So you did see this significant real reduction in electricity prices um, over that period. Sorry, which period? The- uh, kind of 1955 through oh, right. to okay. um, kind of 1980, that yep. type of period. Um, it would be fair to say, though, that I think um, as as part of this broader microeconomic reform agenda of the late 80s and early 90s, it became apparent that you could have competition in 
the generation and the retail components of the electricity market. And this was happening around the world. Um, a fantastic um, contribution by a guy named Fred Schwepp in 1988 really talked about um, uh, how you could create competition in generation and retail, more generation, having a wholesale market. Um, and I guess with the digitalization of energy, we're not too far away now from being able to have a genuine two-sided market, which was, yeah. I, I guess, the original vision. So in the 1990s, there was this concern that without these competitive forces, you weren't going to see the most efficient outcome, particularly from an allocative and a productive efficiency. But how is that manifesting itself? What, what did we see? Did we see... Um very expensive energy or very subsidised energy or blackouts or what were we seeing? I think the best way to characterise it was that it was hard to determine what the cost of energy was right. because there was this smearing going on around with state-owned corporations and you then had kind of what was kind of on the government's balance sheet versus what was on the yeah. corporation's balance sheet versus... Much like the water sector today. Quite. There's a lot of overlap there, sure. And, and also uh, all of the risk by definition was being borne by taxpayers yeah. um, or energy consumers and I think what would what was recognised was that um, private capital uh, could be utilised to effectively wear that risk, and so consumers and taxpayers would then benefit from, I guess, the efficiency um, dividends that would pay out from that. And so the first um, ten years of the market's operation, um, you had the the NEM um, effectively kick off in the late '90s. So you had this wholesale energy pool created for generation trading. Um, you had derivative markets overlaid over the top of that so people could hedge their risk. Um, and then progressively retail markets were deregulated um, under the Australian Energy Market Agreement um, uh, where markets were deemed effective. Now, throughout that whole process, you've had various iterations of them, but the idea has always been to have a delegated um, statutory lawmaking function within the AEMC. And so that kind of replaced what previously parliaments would have individually been doing. Absolutely. Um, and individual parliaments. So the idea was to try and create something. And the way it works is that you've basically got this legislation in one jurisdiction and then it's mirrored in all of the other jurisdictions. And there are derogations from that where it's appropriate. Um, uh, then what you had was the, the notion of a separate regulator. Um, and whilst there was originally a lot of state-based economic regulation, it all shifted and now we have the Australian Energy Regulator, which um, looks after the regulations. So not just the, the economic regulation of networks, which are, have mo monopolistic characteristics, but also the regulation of um, the rules as they apply to the wholesale market or the retail market or what, what have you. And then in the middle of all of this, you've got the market operator. And the market operator's job is um, simple conceptually and incredibly difficult in practice, which is to operate this incredibly complicated system, uh, one of the longest systems in the world. You know, it stretches all the way from far north Queensland all the way down to Tasmania and out into South Australia. Um, and the system has very, very clear uh a very, very clear need to have very, very specific technical characteristics. And when you go outside of those technical characteristics, um, you know, very bad things happen. So the market operator's job um, is incredibly important. Um, and the engineers that are working in AEMO every day to make sure that this system um, operates, um, you have to kind of you know, dip your hat to them and kind of say, well done, because it's an incredibly difficult system. They work incredibly hard with the transmission providers to do that. Um, Just so I know, is it's is difficult because electricity is inherently difficult or it's difficult because of the particular characteristics of the Australian 
energy system? Um, a little bit of both. Um, so power system engineering um, is, you know, as a practitioner of the dismal science of economics, it's a, it's a pretty complicated thing. But I think the other thing that Australia is doing is, um, depending upon where you are in Australia, um, if you're in South Australia, you are now of, in one of only three markets in the world that the International Energy Agency has said is in the very last, most advanced stage of incorporating renewables. The other two being Ireland and Denmark. So South Australia is a good example. Um, you've got 1,500 megawatts roughly of wind. Um, you've got hundreds of megawatts of embedded solar PV. The peak demand in the system is only around 3 gigawatts or 3,000 megawatts, and the average demand is somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500. So at various points now, South Australia is producing more renewable energy than it needs, and it's feeding it over the interconnector. But then there are other times where it's producing virtually no renewable energy at all. So. Mm. So the way in which not just AEMO, but all of the market participants and the market bodies are thinking about this, um, uh, it's really important that we we get it right, not just from a pricing outcome, but from a reliability and security perspective too. Well, so speaking of which, uh, you know, on paper, that is that three-party governance model is is it's like it's ripped out of an economics textbook effectively. You know, that's it should be perfect, but for... Um, What's the standard period that we choose? Something like 2006 or seven onwards. There's been uh, prices have been escalating well, well above inflation. Um, there've been a, f- a fair few challenges going on in the sector as far as um, addressing that price increase. What, what's been happening? What's now that you don't have now that you're no longer a, a market participant? Um, what's the what do you think is the objective take on 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 what's going on in the market? Look, ha- having written plenty of papers on this, I always just put it down to two basic um, uh, factors. One is on the network side. Look, I think there are two things that went on with networks. The first is that reliability standards were tightened quite a lot on the back of some. Uh, reliability issues with networks, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland. That was the blackouts in 06 and 07? Oh, a bit earlier than that. So I think it was 03 or something like that. Um, Yeah, there were some very bad storms in Queensland. Um, uh, Also, I I remember at some point the CBD of of Sydney had some interrupted power. So there was this 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 reaction to reliability and and that resulted in quite a significant run-up in CapEx. Um, So network tariffs um, effectively doubled, particularly in those two jurisdictions. Um, But at the same time all that was going on, you had this narrative of we were still charging and to some extent this is still an issue. We still charge on the basis of the volumetric average cost of, of electricity. And... Uh, what's ideally needed is some shift towards some type of customer reward pricing whereby the exact example you were talking about before that where customers have the opportunity to benefit from not consuming power at times when the system is uh, effectively experiencing scarcity of some type, then customers should be rewarded for that. Um, Historically, um, the industry, I think, got it wrong because we talked about um, cost-reflective pricing and, you know, the economists, you know, come up with some awful names for things like price discrimination. I mean, it just sounds terrible. It mm. might be welfare enhancing, but I, I, wh- I, why I, would you call it that? It's a bit, I mean, isn't it your, probably your most famous paper is about the energy market death spiral? 
Yeah, oh, look, <laughs> you know, uh, um, certainly a lot of people in Australia think that um, that Paul and I came up with that. We did not come up with that term. That term's oh, okay. been established in the literature for a long time. But you, you're on to kind of the thematic here, which is that if you don't have the right pricing signals, um, people tend to re- reduce consumption at the time that's the most convenient for them. Are you saying the pri- that, that that significant uh, price escalation over the last decade had more to do with um, consumers not being given the opportunity to respond rather than wasteful capex? Oh, look, I think it's, it's a mix. And I guess um, that said, I think the other thing that the industry and all of us collectively um, probably didn't uh, do a good job of is thinking through the nature of technology, automation and the interaction with the way in which customers interact mm-hmm. with the market. Um, historically, the literature is full of um, discussion of time of use pricing and these other things where customers, to your point, would respond. So you'd be monitoring things and respond. Mm-hmm. And I think the advantages into the future around the new types of technology coming into the market mean that the customer, from the customer's perspective, what used to be thought of as cost-reflective pricing starts to look a lot more like customer reward pricing, I. I get the Carrot benefit. pricing, not stick pricing. Exactly. Yeah. So I think networks, um, you know, that's that's an issue um, that certainly led to, to pricing pressures. The other one is, I guess, what's happened in the wholesale market in the last couple of years. And it's worth, I guess, going backwards in time and thinking that if you go back five or six years ago, um, people who own generation were talking about the end of the world. They were kind of experiencing record low prices mm-hmm. and talking about how difficult times were um, in the, the generation market. And that was certainly the experience of at the start, at the commencement of the NEM, the, the wholesale prices trended quite significantly down, didn't they, across the, across the, whole, across the whole market and continued for, for, for quite some time. And then suddenly, I guess this event that you're, you're, about to, you're alluding to. Yeah, well, I mean, th- then you had a, after a sustained period of low prices driven by a whole bunch of things, um, demand um, being relatively stagnant compared to what people thought it would be, um, a, a significant introduction of very low marginal cost renewable resources that sit at the very front of the supply curve. Um, it pushed eventually um, some pretty significant energy producing plant out of the market, and of course, you know, markets being supply and demand, and particularly the NEM that looks a little bit like a, a market for resources. It tends to go from um, being uh, quite oversupplied to then being very, you know, re- resources are very scarce. The thing that's changed, though, particularly to drive the the total cost washing through the wholesale market up, it's not so much the prices in the bands that we've seen historically. So if if you break prices into three main bands, you've got, say, a, under $100, then you've got 100 to $500, and then you've got 500 plus. Under 100 is roughly what's traditionally happened most of the time. And then you had these short periods, but of very, very high prices near the market price cap. And the theory of energy-only markets is that you wash all that together and people earn a return on their capital that justifies new investment. The last couple of years, we've seen a lot more price events in this $100 to $500 band. And I guess that's this phenomenon we were talking about a bit earlier around middle of the day, low prices, but then morning and evening, relatively high prices compared to what we've seen in previous, um, previous years. 
the overarching, I guess, comment I'd make about the last couple of years in the wholesale market is that if, again, we could have our time again, having some degree of notice of closure, um, but also, um, uh, I guess, a little bit more of an orderly, uh, I guess, approach to the way in which collectively all governments and civil society think about um, the issue of um, climate mitigation, um, I think probably would have resulted in a better outcome than what we've got now. Probably a good segue to uh, your most recently released paper. Yes. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of voices in this in the in the climate policy space. A lot of very loud voices, and they're um, the experts are very rarely deferred to. We find so. Can you um, maybe talk us through what you found as far as the development of climate policy? Because that's what the paper looked at. What what did it uh, what did it evaluate, and what was the conclusion? I guess the paper that we pulled together um, and has just been published in Economic Analysis and Policy. Tried to get a free copy, then it's... uh, Yeah, well, that has actually been one of the criticisms I've had from some stakeholders, which is a lot of these papers sit behind paywalls, and I I kind of have a view that, well, that's a broader problem in academia. Um, We can probably do a completely separate podcast on that. The real purpose of the paper was really to explain the importance of another one of these strategic priorities that the Commission's talked about, which is aligning the financial incentives facing participants with the physical needs of the system. So what it was saying is, as a general rule, a shift away from production subsidies to prices that generally reflect the externality that you're looking at. And that externality is not just on the greenhouse side. It could also be on things like reliability. And that's what the RRO is all about, really, which is... Yeah, yeah, sorry for just another acronym, just what people (laughs) needed. Um, The Retailer Reliability Obligation that... uh, Part of the National Energy Guarantee. Yeah, that that the Energy Security Board um, has been looking at. And I guess that's the purpose of the paper, really, which is to say, rather than approach it from a um, uh, an ends perspective, go right back to the beginning and say, what are we actually trying to achieve here? And depending upon what we're trying to achieve, let's make sure we get the right pricing signals for those externalities and get them get them into the market. So, what was what was the best way to to expose the market to that pricing signal? A broad based price on that externality. Right. I don't know if it's on purpose, but but you um well, I'll give you some context to this question. We had Kerry Shot on here on for our first episode and uh, we asked her about a carbon price and we used the word carbon price and she said that the word that those two words together are like Voldemort in the sense that they can never be mentioned. And I noticed that you've avoided a specific that specific terminology. What do you think is the is the um, the challenge as far as just uh, that particular policy, and why do we have so much more success with um, implementing what I would describe as sort of industry support policies? The renewable energy target seems to have bipartisan support, but the goal of that policy is more renewable energy. Emissions reduction is a potential byproduct, not not the goal. Why do you think we have? that imbalance, successful industry support policies, not no success with the broad carbon mitigation policies? Look, I don't know. Um, but isn't it the carrot and stick thing again? It's, you know, the price is a, is a stick, support or rewards for industry is a, 
Potentially. Carrot, what it's done is generated a whole industry in coming up with new ways of calling a carbon price anything other than a carbon price. Absolutely. The- Look, I, th- I think, and that's where I keep talking about pricing externalities. And I know for, for people on the on who are listening to this, they're probably thinking, why doesn't he just say something directly? Why is he keeping on talking in kind of economic jargon? But the reason I talk that way is that there are various ways of pricing an externality. A, a carbon price is one, yeah. but there are other ways of doing it. And that's where I keep coming back to what is really needed in the electricity system is not just one pricing of externality, but it's making sure that the price at any point in time for the wholesale market is reflective of the technology characteristics that are needed at that point in time and across the life of the asset. And that's where that that fifth priority around aligning physical and financial is so important because we've tended to gloss over that and production subsidies have been a, a principal reason for that. Um, that because production subsidies tend to just mean that you're wanting to produce at any point to the extent that you get paid the subsidy, mm. it breaks that link. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because that that's the having those other policies actually uh, reduces the 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 potential impact of one single broad based policy. If you had a, a carbon price and a renewable energy target and a solar panel subsidy, the carbon price would never actually get particularly high. And you might, the p- perception wise, you might think, well, actually, the carbon price is not the effective part of this group of policies. Well, we've also seen a fundamental shift in the economics of all the technologies. So if you go right back in time 15 years ago, um, 20 years ago, um, people made the assumption that you would need to you know, have that carbon price to see a lot of um, capital stock stub- uh, substitution. But as we're seeing the technology fundamentally change in the sense of its economics. So it's it's now the case that if you just want to produce a unit of energy in Australia um, in the electricity system, the cheapest form of energy is going to come from solar or wind. That said, not all units of energy are the same and that there are times of the day when the value of the energy produced is a lot higher um, and therefore you need those pricing signals to reflect that you don't just need energy, you also need capacity and that's what the that's what our market does very very effectively at the moment so we spoke about system security and reliability and not that it's a good analogy for reliability but i haven't um have the mbn at home it's on the hfc network which isn't that reliable but in terms of the, the retailer is very proactive at telling me when there's a problem with my internet service and they will tell me when you know, our data usage is high and all that things. But I never get a I never get a text message from my energy retailer, despite the fact that I have a smart meter, I never get a text message saying, Did you know that yesterday you used twice as much energy as you normally do? Or um you know, we don't tend to have outages in our energy, but they I assume they wouldn't tell me and update me around outages. Is there something that we've got wrong in the way we've structured the incentives for retailers where they they're not as proactive as in some other um, network. Look, I think it's a function of the technology and the business model, and you're starting to see some of that shift. So, to your point earlier, um, earlier around um, your provider, you know, saying, "Well, prices are high. You know, please try and um, reduce your bill by doing what you can at this point in time to reduce your consumption." Um, as that technology that allows that comes more into the market, I, I think that it's you would expect to see that. Um, just as an example, I won't name the provider because um, we 
do go out of our way to make sure that we're um, competitively uh, neutral. We're not kind of promoting any one particular entity's products and services, but one provider I know sends um, alerts to you when uh, their particular portfolio of renewables is producing at great volume and says, well, for the next two hours, you're going to get free power. Um, so again, to your point around the, the carrot versus the stick. So there's lots of these new models. There's another model now which passes pretty much through the spot price. So I've, I've been waiting for something like that because it's uh, it's incredible. It's, Do you uh, want to be exposed to the spot price? If you if you're able to move your demand, if you if you are capable of it, then absolutely. Well, yeah, on the say- low side, but on the upside, I don't want to. There's an information asymmetry. I don't want to be exposed to the spot price. It's your choice. But yes, if you are someone that has a lot of capability to shift your shift your consumption. And I guess that's the thing that in the new uh, the new digital world, um, it's possible for consumers to pick the right resources for their circumstances. So for some, that'll be lots of DER um, with lots of fancy gadgets and other things that that work for them. For others, it might actually be I just want you know a really basic grid connection, um, and I want to kind of get a really decent cheap tariff that doesn't expose me to lots of the types of risks that we were talking about before. We do want you to look into your crystal ball. We have a few um, a few predictions we're hoping you can make with the caveat that you just offered before. Um, we'll take that as assumed. First up, uh, my bill is X today for my for, for electricity and gas. Over the next 10 years, what's it going to be percentage-wise? Wow. Like you thought I was being, um, I was avoiding the question in yeah. relation to carbon pricing. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to be able to answer that one. But is it, go, are we, is it, are we on a downwards trajectory or is there, is... Look, well, well, I'd offer three viewpoints across the three supply components in the electricity sector. The first being wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say look to the forward curves and what the forward curves say is that, um, yeah, it's, it's, coming down. it's coming down. So that's, that's good news for energy consumers. In the network space, I think it's um, it's interesting because I can actually see um, some real benefits longer term from adoption of um, Electric vehicles. really efficient integration of distributed energy resources. So again, the theory there says if you do all that really effectively, you'll lower the total average cost to serve. Total average cost to serve in networks is basically the tariff. So again, I, I wouldn't offer a view about what it looks like but again i would i would say that if we get the right policy settings and we embrace some of these technologies then it should be a good outcome and on the retail side i think it all comes down to what we see happening with that digital technology if if we really see that um adopted um by consumers in a way that suits consumers i.e that consumers uh, are demanding and they might not be demanding it explicitly but they're demanding it implicitly through aggregation and these other services, then again, that should be um, helping them reduce the consumption component of their bill. And it's interesting because you use the term bill, and that's what I find really important for people to focus on. Bills equals price times consumption. And everyone does want to talk a lot about price, but consumption- It's not the unit cost. It's the final bill that's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I often say that, you know, and we all know this in our own lives, that when you get home and you open up any bill, whether it's your water bill, your electricity bill, your Telstra bill, Optus bill, whatever it looks like, um, your first reaction is to go to that number about how much I owe 
whoever I'm paying. It's not to go straight to the unit price. Sure, after looking at the number, you'll do one of two things. I hear stories about people blaming everyone in their in their home for having a high bill for leaving everything on, or you'll go straight to the price and go, I need to ring and make sure I'm getting a better deal. It's worse in my house because you can see it through the smart meter. I blame people in real time. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, what happened yesterday? Yeah, well, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I often kind of... Uh, you know, wonder how many uh, fights it's going to cause in inside an individual household <laughs> when people start keeping track of what people are doing in the middle of the day. You know, you see your teenage kids kind of at home, you're like bringing them saying, uh, shouldn't you be at school? I am at school. Well, according to this, you're using a lot of power at <laughs> yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, quite. One more of these future questions. Any, um, I'll go for the coal plant one. Is there likely to be another coal plant built in Australia? Look, I wouldn't offer a view. Generally, in a period of disruption, um, people will go to lower capex, higher opex plays, um, and that's where, again, I keep coming back to the consumer side. Um, you know, there are often ways of of uh, having digital technology which makes demand more variable, match more variable supply. So, look, it's a matter for the participants, um, but the economics um, are going to be what guides it. Um, and at the moment, just at the moment, the, the economics indicate that what we need is fast start dispatchable plant. In the future, um, it's hard to say. Um, so we've asked all of our guests one common question. Um, it's, a, it's pretty unfair to you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? Oh, wow. Um, I would say at the moment... Um, the thing that I spend the most time thinking about is heavy fixed cost infrastructure in a market that's facing disruption. Yeah, okay. And so therefore, um, at the moment, um, it's basically everything in electricity um, because we're moving more and more towards these heavy fixed cost pieces of infrastructure. So think of a solar plant or a electricity network. They're generally largely CapEx. Mm. You build it. It's there. It's got very relatively low operating costs. And the reason I point to that is that historically infrastructure in the um, electricity space has been relatively highly geared because it's been a relatively low risk, low return environment. Um, are we seeing a fundamental change in the market? I don't know. But um, the nature in which um, participants think about that might be different in the future. And if you look at, say, Shell's recent um, entry into the Australian market. Who did they buy? They just bought ERM. That's right, yeah. Um, I think, has it gone through yet? I think there was an uh, offer at 40% premium on the share price, but I don't know if it's gone through. Oh, oh, I'm not sure, but just, just the fact yeah. that they're, they're interested. And I know globally Shell is has announced kind of this broader shift into kind of electrification. If you just go with, you know, efficient market hypothesis theory um, and, you know, kind of allocation of of investment theory. Um, Shell's obviously talking to its um, providers of equity and saying, we think we can deliver the same types of risk returns that we've delivered to you from an oil and gas perspective that in our new investments in electricity. And so are we seeing that change? I wouldn't offer a view, but based upon the evidence that you see presenting in front of us, the, the, my favourite piece of infrastructure being that heavy fixed cost stuff in electricity, I think we might be starting to 
to kind of see investors in the market think about that differently, which is um, which is certainly an exciting thing to at least be thinking about. Tim, I, I don't think that could possibly be more of an economist's answer to the question. <laughs> I was hoping you'd Every, say rail yeah, or something. Everyone, everyone else said something like a train or I like a road. <laughs> oh, look, if, if, if I had to give you kind of like the non um, the non economist view, so let me kind of like try and and, and get outside of that. I would say probably my favourite um, uh, piece of infrastructure would would actually be bridges. Oh, you're not the first person to say bridges. And, and the reason I say bridges is that um, I've always just been fascinated at how something like the Sydney Harbour Bridge was built in the sense that they start at both sides. Mm. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a, you know, a terrible handyman, but all I can just think of is that you know, you get to the middle and they don't meet. So I think, I don't know, bridges I've always found quite fascinating about how they actually... I think tunnels is harder with that. I'm always intrigued how they... Because sometimes they'll start a tunnel at both ends. How do they get them to meet up in the middle? That seems like a terribly difficult thing to... And in, in fact, even get to to the other... It doesn't, you don't have to meet up in the middle. How do they specifically I th- aim I where I think the thing about in. the tunnel though is at least you could kind of if you didn't do it well you could kind of botch it by <laughs> keep going yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, whereas you know and now it's starting to sound very much like an economist talking about engineering oh you just botch it and kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah I'd, I'd probably probably say bridges bridges yeah. alright we'll go, well, we'll go with with uh, big things in the energy sector and bridges yeah That's that the, sounds pretty right. good good um, Tim, thank you very much for your time and thanks for joining us today. Oh, look, um, thank you. And uh, for all of your listeners, apologies if it sounded like in relation to uh, greenhouse externality pricing, I was dodging the question, <laughs> but uh, I, I did my very best. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Cheers. That's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship and hosting of the series. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to Inside Infrastructure and leave us a rating or a comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to send us those either to Ilya or myself. Uh, We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bergeson, Michael Player and Brendan Pearce.